Welcome to the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. And now your host of the show, Dr. Jennifer K. Thompson. Hi there, and thank you for joining us for our very first episode of 2021. Uh, When you hear this, it will be later, but I am in fact recording this on January 1st. And on New Year's Day, if you are anything like me, when the clock struck midnight last night, you were probably pretty happy to put 2020 in the rearview mirror. Uh, it was a tough year. I know it was, for me, a tough year, personally, professionally. Uh, if you have kids uh, or you work in education, I suspect it was an especially tough year for you. Uh, as you watch kids or colleagues struggle with the new circumstances, Uh, We can go into a lot of detail about why it was a difficult year. And I think we saw a lot of our institutions and our systems tested. And unfortunately, they did not always pass those tests. In fact, more often than not, unfortunately, they seem to have failed. And so we don't want to wallow in what was tough about 2020, I think. We want to look forward, and that's something we often do on New Year's Day. Think about goals that we have for the coming year. Uh, habits we want to change, resolutions we want to set. And I think those are all important things. And personally, I am really hoping 2021 is a better year. But I do think it would be a mistake for us to run too quickly away from 2020. And that's because I think we can learn a lot from a review of the past year. So what we've done in this episode is we have taken some of the uh, best ideas we heard in 2020 and gathered them together. And we think, you know, these are the best ideas, not just because they came from smart, thoughtful people, or because they're just generally good tips and strategies, but because these are ideas that we can apply in the coming year. And so hopefully we can be more resilient in 2021, that individually we can be more creative and innovative, hopefully more at peace with one another, uh, and make our personal lives and the communities around us better in the coming 12 months. So I hope you will enjoy this roundup of the best ideas we heard in 2021. In this first clip, you are going to hear Stephanie Slade, who is the managing editor of Reason Magazine. I talked to her back in September, and when we think back about 2020, it's certainly the case that there were problems at such a scale no single individual or community could have been expected to resolve those problems. And I think there are ways in which the events of the past year can make us feel uh, individually helpless to make things better. What Stephanie is about to talk about in this clip is I think one of the most important ideas I heard. And that is that when we're faced with challenges, we need to think about our own individual responsibility, what we can do, what our communities can do to address those problems and how not thinking that way causes problems of its own. Here's Stephanie. I think what we have seen um, over decades, but accelerating in, in recent years, has been um, a crowding out of local and individual and private um, energies by an assumption that, well, the federal, that's the federal government's job and they're gonna deal with it. And I pay my taxes and so I don't have to worry about what's, you know, what 
about solving these problems. That's not my job. I have a life to live. It's the government's job. And, and the entirety of my responsibilities to my brothers and sisters, you know, my fellow man, it consists in me paying my taxes and, um, you know, voting once every other year or once every four years. And that's a problem, actually, because um, the, one of the, the distinguishing marks of the American character, you know, going back to the founding, going back to Tocqueville, was the sort of um, the, the robust civil society, the way that we as, as individuals um, would band together in voluntary associations of, of a whole variety of kinds in order to solve problems. I mean, we're talking, and this, and this is, um, you know, from, from like your neighborhood group and your, or your church, um, your, your labor union, you know, whatever the case may be, there are, there are, there are just these sort of um, this whole web of civil society institutions, what they call inter, you know, intermediary institutions between the individual person and the government far away. And that those groups and those institutions were supposed to be the first line of defense and the first, you know, this is where problems are supposed to be solved, if at all possible. And only if they just cannot, it cannot be done at that level, should the government then step in. Um, but we've lost that, that sort yeah. of that sense. And I think that I, I really think that the reason is, as the federal government has grown, has grown, and has taxed people more and spent more money and taken upon itself more responsibilities, it has, it has sort of, um, a residual or a result of that has been to create apathy in people. We, we don't, yeah. we no longer think that it's our responsibility to solve problems. Um, and that's what we've lost. So it's not so much that I think at the local level, people are demanding that, that, that the wrong person um, at the local level solve problems. It's that they're, they're trying to push all, all responsibility up to Washington and expect somebody very far away to do something about it so that I don't have to think about it anymore. Yeah. That's not healthy. So Stephanie is talking about the importance of civil society and local decision making in a general way there. But in 2020, if you want a specific example of the superiority of localized decision making, you don't have to look much further than the challenges our educational system faced. Back in late July, I talked to Dr. Mike McShane, who's the director of national research at EdChoice. And we had a conversation about what we had learned in the spring about uh, education in the pandemic, but we were particularly focused in that conversation on the choices and the decisions that parents, students, teachers, and administrators were faced with as they thought about the fall semester. Our conversation, again, was before the school semester started, and in hindsight, we now obviously have a lot more knowledge about how that decision-making went and what happened with schools, and we continue to face those challenges today. But you're going to hear Mike talk about how decentralized systems are more resilient, and he's also going to talk about how the way we discuss these kinds of challenges and the kinds of policy responses to challenges we face can be made better or worse based on how we approach them and how we talk about them. Here's Mike. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, when people say we need some national response as a top-down thing, I'm like, well, when you all know what it is, let me know. Because I, I, I haven't heard it. I haven't found it. You know what I mean? So so I think that's uh, the challenge is I just, you're right. It doesn't exist, right? So what I try to think about is, 
even outside of education or just sort of in life in general, like how do we build systems that are more resilient? You know, there was like Nassim Taleb who wrote that great book, Anti-Fragile. So how do we create systems that, that even might benefit from external shocks? How does it make it stronger? And I think communities, tight-knit communities are a great example of this, where when something bad happens in a tight-knit community, it actually draws people closer together. You, 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 know, you don't know who your friends are until something bad happens to you, and you realize how important these people are in your life and your family and all of these people that are like that. So, yeah, I mean, I think ultimately decentralized systems are more resilient than centralized systems are, because what we saw across so many of these school districts was you are at the mercy of what your superintendent and school district decide right so if you want to do something different but like your school district says like well this is what we're doing we're sending packets home it's like well wait i i want something different sorry this was the decision there's sort of one failure point there if they decide yeah juice isn't worth the squeeze or it's gonna be too much work or like we can't do it you're you're just out of luck right yeah. Whereas a more decentralized system allows lots of different schools to come up with different responses, right? And, and I think that, look, as we transition into looking at, at coming back in the fall, you know, some of the surveying that we've done at EdChoice and other shows, you know, there's a substantial portion of the population, both of the parent population and it should be said of the teacher population that are comfortable with going back to school. I mean, a mm. recent polling that we did said about 55% of parents say they're comfortable sending their children back to school or 57% of parents said they're comfortable with their students going back to school. And about 55% of teachers said that they were comfortable going back, which is fascinating because I would have thought there would have been a bigger difference between those two groups, yeah. but there's relative unanimity be between those two. Now, again, when we're talking about 55 million school children, you know, 43% of them who aren't comfortable going back that's a lot of kids. That's a lot of kids, And yeah. we have 3.2 million teachers, so 45% of them is a whole lot of teachers, right? And we have this big, vast, diverse country, right? So I'm in Kansas City, Missouri, um, where, you know, coronavirus case counts are, are on the rise. But there are counties across, you know, central Missouri, northern Missouri, southern Iowa, western Kansas, you know, that are within a couple hours drive of here, that like are generally not really seeing a whole lot of coronavirus there. So you know, the, the answers that might happen for where I live versus where other people in even the same state that I live in are totally different. Like I imagine there are gonna be tons of schools, rural schools that are generally isolated from one another that are gonna basically go back to normal because, you know, the coronavirus just isn't really affecting them because they're yeah. living rural, isolated community. You know what I mean? So, yeah. so I think there, there isn't this one answer, both because of the incredible diversity of the schools and communities that we're in, but also just like the preferences of parents. Like some parents... Ultimately, what we're going to have to be doing is weighing some really difficult trade-offs, which mm. is people are worried about the, the health effects of the virus, but they're also worried about the negative effects of kids not in school, which are, that's like a serious problem, right? Like kids not learning, especially in really important early grades, can have long-lasting negative, uh, negative impacts on them, right? Mm -hmm. So we're going to have to weigh, the, there is no right answer. Yeah different people are going to weigh those challenges differently. And so having a system that's much more voluntary in nature, right? Where people can pick, pick where to go to school. So people that are, you know, more risk tolerant or that weigh those things differently can say, Hey, look, here's a school that's going to open for five days a week. We recognize that there are risks that are part of that. The teachers know that and are choosing to be here. The families know that and are choosing to be here versus there's a school over here. That's much more worried uh, about these things. So, so allowing for that type of stuff to happen. Um, I think also 
uh, in, you know, continuing on this incredibly long-winded answer. But, um, uh, you know, another piece of this is like, part of what we need to do, I think, in America today is turn down the dial on a lot of this stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. as, sort of as you mentioned, like the fact that wearing a mask in public has become a polarizing thing, I think just shows kind of how sick our politics are. Um, and so saying like, look, we don't have to come up with one answer, right? It's not like we're going back to school or we aren't. It's, we're going to let different people answer this differently. We're not going to force anybody's kids into something that they don't want to be in. We're not going to force teachers into stuff that they don't want to do. We can turn down the dial on so much of this divisive stuff and, and, and make, make our communities more pleasant places to live in. I loved Mike's suggestion that maybe we can just dial it down a little bit when we have disagreement over challenges that we face, whether it's in education or anything else. But this was a tough year to dial things down given all the turmoil we faced. In the middle of the year, we talked to Dr. Pamela Pereski, who is a psychologist, uh, a visiting lecturer at the University of Chicago, and who's thought a great deal about this subject, about how we have more productive conversations and how we address the polarization that we see. What you're gonna hear in the next two clips are first, her accounting of why the circumstances that we faced this year made it especially hard for us to do what Mike is talking about and how that presented a new challenge. In the second clip, what you're gonna hear Pamela talking about is given the levels of polarization that we have in our country, in our culture, how do we best address those? And she's going to talk about what she uh, describes as steel manning, the opposite of straw manning arguments. So while we want to work towards dialing down the rhetoric, how do we actually go about doing that practically? Here's Pamela. And I think that the, the pandemic really has um, created this intensification of the urge or urgency to have a, a moral purification. Um, and so that's something that we just have to be aware of in ourselves. We have to have a, a, a much higher level of self-awareness than we've ever needed in operating in our daily lives. Also because, because of the, um, the lockdowns and how we've been separated from each other yeah. for so long, we're, we're now becoming in a way less human ourselves. We're not accustomed to and not really built for being so socially isolated. Yeah. And it, it really does something to the psyche, including, I think, in some ways, making us forget what it means to be human and making us forget that those other people that are now only sort of political abstractions online are actually human beings who are just as concerned about you know, the welfare of other people as we are and who are, we may disagree with them, but they're also people with feelings and jobs and families to feed and, you know, the same concerns that we have. It's, it's really very bad for us to, to be so socially disconnected. When people aren't, don't feel free to say the things that they think about a problem, about an issue, then we are all robbed of those ideas that could be helpful in solving that problem. So, so going back to the very beginning of our conversation, criminal justice reform is something that has been on the minds of people on the right and the left. 
And if we only want to hear from the most extreme ideas on the left, then we're not going to solve that problem. We have to also be able to listen to the whole range of ideas for how to solve that problem, some of which we will find upsetting, but we have to listen to them and that will either change our minds about how to go about things or it will give us ideas for how to sharpen our arguments so that we can persuade more people that our ideas are the right ones. We absolutely have to know what the best arguments are on the other side in order to make the best arguments on our side. Something mm -hmm. that has increasingly been called steel manning an idea. And instead of, instead of always knocking down a straw man, straw man yeah. you know, try, try to create a steel man and see if you like can that. fight that one. I love this idea of steel manning instead of the straw man, right? So if I hold an opinion or a point of view, instead of responding to the most caricatured, cartoonish version of the opposing point of view and dismissing it, I need to try and understand the strongest argument and articulate the strongest argument against my own position, both because it will help me understand people with whom I disagree, but also because it will help improve the quality of my own argument. But how do we go about doing that in practice? In December, we talked to Dr. Lindsay Hoffman, who is a professor at the University of Delaware. She works in political science and communications. So she's always thinking about our political communication, about how technology affects that communication. And she's also thinking about how to talk with students about this. It's a great conversation. I hope you'll listen to the whole thing. But here you're going to hear Lindsay talking about how to diversify our news sources and taking ownership of the obligation to know both sides of an issue. Everything you read, everything you see is mediated. You mm. don't know what's happening behind the scenes. So you have to look at all the information that you're taking in is, is mediated. It comes from a source that came from a source that came from a source. And that means that sometimes think, things get misinformed along the way or different information gets presented in one format versus another format, particularly when you're talking about more polarizing cable news networks like Fox News and MSNBC, you're going to be seeing different content. Mm -hmm. They're two different streams of reality. So when you start to have a conversation between a person who watches MSNBC all the time and a person who watches Fox News all the time, they're not going to understand each other. Um, so I think the most important thing is to diversify your media portfolio before you go into these conversations so that you can see, okay, what are people talking about who don't agree with me? Like, what are their talking points? Um, if we're thinking about, you know, voter fraud is, I think, maybe the what's happening with the election, uh, post-election. Um, yeah. You know, was there voter fraud or did people vote who weren't supposed to vote? So find out what people are saying on other sides. And Twitter, this is very easy to do. You can follow people on all sides. Um, and uh, you know, but it's, it's also something that I think people need to take ownership of, the, uh, ownership of and take a responsibility for uh, consuming information as a skeptic, a healthy skeptic. Yeah. Um, and not, don't be cynical. Don't, don't opt out and say all the news is fake and I, nothing's right. I can't trust anything um, and falling into, you know, conspiracy theories. No, let's not go that far. Like the news is created by human beings. Human beings are flawed. Uh, the news tries to get it right. Uh, we have professional standards for journalists. Um, there are conferences and organizations where journalists talk about best practices. 
but we're human beings. So things will, you know, every story that you hear in, in a newscast is going to be framed in some way. So I talk about framing in my class a lot because framing isn't a choice. It's not like a journalist says, I'm going to frame this story right. this way. Right. It's they're saying, okay, what's the important part of the story? Here's what I think is the important part of the story. Um, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's about an individual or a personality um, rather than, you know, for example, like I often say that it's hard for news media to cover complex issues, particularly um, television and, and internet news that's broadcast at you uh, because you want to keep people's attention. So yeah. it's hard to talk about an issue like poverty or hunger with just a two and a half minute story when this is such a much broader issue. So I'm getting off uh, on a tangent a little bit, but it, it's, it relates just because I think you have to go into those conversations with the right raw material, yeah. uh, a diverse set of raw material to say, okay, I have seen that argument before. Can you tell me a little bit more about it? In the midst of all the bad news in 2020 and of people uh, arguing with each other and not being able to find common ground on a lot of different things, there were still really good news stories. And in the middle of the year, we talked to Adam Thierer, who's a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. He had just published his book, Evasive Entrepreneurs and the Future of Governance. And we had a conversation about that book and the points that he was making. But you're going to hear now Adam talking about some of the successes in human innovation and entrepreneurship that we saw as a result of the challenges of the COVID-19 crisis. Well, what's most interesting to me about the COVID crisis is the fact that governments themselves have been admitting quite often how misguided many old public policies are or how they've held back common sense responses. And they've been sunsetting or at least suspending or pausing a great many rules and regulations because they've held back sensible responses to the COVID outbreak. Um, I'll just give you a couple of really simple examples. I mean, there've been things like uh, regulations, really meticulous regula regulations governing things like face masks and hand sanitizers. And a lot of people were saying like, well, gee, I, I can help make face masks or I can help make hand sanitizers. And yet they were immediately confronted with just reams of red tape and regulations that were almost impenetrable and, and indecipherable. And yet they said, well, why can't we do this? It just makes sense, right? Why, why can't we help? In, in many areas, uh, doctors and hospitals put out calls almost immediately for help in terms of finding ways to build or mo uh, modify breathing machines to, to make ventilators. And people who are using 3D printers and open source blueprints were able to step forward and help and say, hey, we can help do this using old machineries married up with new uh, fabricated technologies. The problem is, is that there are all sorts of rules and regulations that says you're, you can't do that. And so those are just a few examples, but I, I will tell you this in terms of sheer numbers, there is an organization called Americans for Tax Reform that's been monitoring all of the rules that have been sunset or paused in the wake of the COVID outbreak. And their running list is now up over 600 rules and regulations mm -hmm. that federal, state, and local governments have paused or sunset in the wake of this crisis. And what's amazing about that, Jennifer, is that that's a, that's a tacit admission by government that rules that were put in place with the very best of intentions in mind ultimately did not deliver. Yeah. And so it took innovative acts by average people to wake them up to the reality that maybe there's a better and different and sensible way of doing things 
that maybe aren't perfectly in compliance with yesterday's old archaic rule book. That might sound a little bit like good news, bad news, right? The good news is in that the midst of the pandemic and all the challenges that we were facing, individuals came up with creative and innovative ideas to address some of the problems. Unfortunately, the bad news is that there were a bunch of regulations in place that prevented these entrepreneurs from moving forward with the ideas. Those were rolled back, and Adam mentioned a list of 600 by the time we talked to him uh, midsummer of 2020 uh, that had already been rolled back at various levels of government. That's great for the pandemic, but how do we take that lesson and how do we take that progress and move forward? Here's Adam on an idea that he and some of his colleagues have had to apply that learning moving forward. Again, I just want to reiterate how important this is that governments themselves have identified the rules that are problematic. They have given us the list. This is not some crazy wild-eyed libertarian fever dream of like saying, let's just burn all these things out. These are, no, look, this is government saying that our rules have failed us in the public interest. Okay, great. Now we have a chance to study them. Let's take all of those rules. Let's have experts take a look at which of them made sense and which didn't. And oh, by the way, we can do a kind of almost an A-B comparison now. You know, what was the effect of these rules before and then after they were suspended? You know, was public health or welfare affected negatively? Or maybe it was affected positively. Maybe we got more innovation and, and, and interesting things happened we couldn't have envisioned. That's a chance to study and then maybe do that reset button move. What's the reset button move? Well, what we propose in the paper is the idea of building on something known as the BRAC Commission model. The BRAC Commission was the base realignment and closure commission that was set up in the wake of the Cold War to deal with the fact that there were tons of military bases all over America during the Cold War. Most of them after the Cold War was ending weren't really needed, but not a single congressman or woman in the world was ever going to vote against a base in their own district. Right, because it goes against their own, you know, because it's a pork barrel thing, right? They yeah. deliver money and jobs back home. Hey, even. look, I put people out of business, yeah. Right. So in one of the strokes of, uh, one of the most brilliant strokes of genius in terms of institutional design mechanism, um, policymakers came up with this idea of a BRAC commission that would basically bundle all of the, the, the bases together, study them all, figure out which ones were actually needed for security purposes and which ones weren't and then have a conspicuous vote by Congress, thumbs up or thumbs down, on the entire package of reforms. And that gave policymakers a way, sort of almost a get out of jail free card with their electorate, to say right. like, hey, look, I wanted to support our district back home, but you know what? It was part of a big proposal and everybody's oxes got gored here, and so I just had to go along yeah. with it, but I certainly wouldn't have voted against it if I could have. It worked, it yeah. worked. We cleaned yeah. up that mess fairly effectively. What if we have the same model, sort of a BRAC commission for bad rules, basically bundle together a bunch of these policies and say, up or, thumbs up or thumbs down, we either reform or sunset these things together all at once because you yourself, government, said these things weren't working. Yeah. And that could be applied at the federal level. And it could be applied even more importantly at the state level with things like occupational licensing laws or cert certificate of need laws or other restrictions on innovative dynamism. You can read more about this idea that Adam and his colleagues have, the Fresh Start Initiative, in a paper that they've written, which we will link to in the show notes. But I think that Adam's uh, discussion there is a great example of how even in the middle of a crisis, people are thinking entrepreneurially, they're trying to find ways to make the world better around them, and how what we saw in the past year can actually help us think about 
regulation about whether or not we need to rethink some of those regulations and how we can do that in conjunction with government as opposed to an us versus them kind of way. The final clip I want to play you comes from uh, Dr. Chris Fryman, who was on the podcast right before the election uh, with a discussion about his new book, Why It's Okay to Ignore Politics, which might seem a little strange right before the election. But what I want you to hear from our discussion is something that I think is really important for all of us to be thinking about in the coming year, regardless of how you feel about the election results, what your political ideology is. Chris here is going to talk about some of the challenges to the ways we reason about politics. And because of those challenges, it's important for us to think about other outlets and opportunities to make a difference in the world around us. Here's Chris. So a uh, uh, worry is that even if you acquire all of this knowledge, uh, you're going to pro or this information, you're going to process it in a biased way. So you, you know you would probably come into it with your pre-existing partisan commitments. So if you're uh, you know a Democrat or a Republican reading about school vouchers or gun control, for example, you're probably inclined to a certain perspective from the start. And so maybe if you're a Democrat you're more skeptical of information that tells you gun control doesn't work. Or if you're a Republican, you're gonna be skeptical of information that tells you gun control does work. And so it could be that all the research is, is ultimately for nothing. It's not actually going to change your mind. It just reinforces what you believed anyway. But then if you recognize this tendency about yourself where you think, look, I, I might get pretty solid information that suggests that my view is wrong, but that information won't actually move me, it won't lead me to correct my beliefs, then you should be really self-skeptical, I think, of, of your political beliefs and say, I'm just not sure if I'm, if I'm on the right side here. I'm not sure if I'm gonna vote for the right candidate. And I think this also weakens the argument for political participation. It's like if somebody has, they, they, there's like a button in front of you and they say, uh, it, you know, if uh, the button is, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, like, light or if the button is sky blue uh it's good if it's robin's egg blue it's bad and it's like hmm okay like i'm not sure i can trust myself like my color vision is not super great i don't know if it's robin's egg blue or sky blue like okay maybe you don't push the button if you can't trust your own judgment in that case and so similarly if you think hmm i can't really trust my judgment about which candidate's going to be better uh so if you if you do it right that could be good but if you do it wrong that could be really bad you might just say look I'm going to set this one out. And what I should do is reallocate my time to causes that I have much more confidence in. So it's pretty easy to be confident that donations to the Against Malaria Foundation are going to do good. And I think the fact that we should just be self-skeptical of our political judgments increases the reason that we have to disengage from politics and focus on other forms of altruism that are not as politicized. I wish we could play clips from every episode we recorded in 2020 because we talked to so many really interesting people who had great ideas, but we wanted to keep this episode to around half an hour. So I like the idea of ending here with Chris's reminder that there are a lot of ways you can impact the world around you. And political activity is just one of those ways. And it may not be the best way for you to make change in the world. 
My hope for you in 2021 is that you will think creatively about your own interests and your own talents and that you will find ways to apply both to the world around you, whether it's through conversations with people who have different ideas than you do or political activity or just getting more knowledge about policy and um, the issues that are going on in your community. There are a lot of different ways to have an impact. And our resolution at Civil Squared is that we will continue to bring you conversations with thoughtful, intelligent people who we hope will inspire you to go out and take action and make the world around you a more peaceful and stable place. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope you'll join us in the coming year. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. We'll see you next time for another conversation.